Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on time management and productivity hacking. I mean, you can find endless tips on how to master your workflow, tame your inbox, slay your to-do list. Far less examined, however, is the philosophy that underlies these strategies. My guest says that when you do examine that philosophy, you find it doesn't actually align with lived experience. His name is Oliver Berkman, and in his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, he forwards a philosophy of time management that is more realistic and more humane. Today on the show, Oliver makes the case for a kind of contrarian way to make the most of the 4,000 weeks of the average human lifespan, beginning with why he reached a point in his own life where he realized that standard methods of productivity hacking were futile and just made him feel busier and less happy. We then get into the fact that we'd like to do an infinite number of things but are finite beings, and how this contrast creates an anxiety that we attempt to soothe and deny through productivity techniques. We then discuss the problem of treating time as a thing, a resource that's separate from the self, and how one antidote to this mindset is to do things for pure enjoyment alone. Oliver explains why engaging in efficiency for its own sake only creates more stuff to do and why recognizing you can never clear the decks of your daily tasks nor get everything done can actually help you focus on the things that matter most. We in our conversation with why really digging into a deep philosophy of time by facing up to its stakes and engaging in what Oliver calls cosmic insignificance therapy can allow you to live a bolder, more meaningful life. Also, I mentioned a poem during our conversation that I decided to recite in full at the end of the show, so be sure to listen to the end so you can hear it. You can find a link to that poem in our show notes, which can be found at aom.is slash 4,000 weeks. All right, Oliver Berkman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So you've got a new book out. It's called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And you take a deep dive into philosophy, psychology, sociology, history, religion, to suss out a philosophy of time management. That's, I think it's, it's a, a humane philosophy of time management. And you make the case in the book, The Beginning, that our, that our popular idea of time management that we have, like getting things done, inbox zero, being efficient, is that... It, it's paradoxical because it, it allows us to get more things done. I mean, these systems do work to get you know, help you do a lot more. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they cause us to feel busier and busier. When did you start noticing this paradox in your own life? Well, I mean, for years, I wrote a column for the Guardian newspaper about psychology, productivity, science of happiness, and all the rest of it. And one of the things I got to do there was indulge my at that point, lifelong interest in in productivity systems, in, in sort of trying to find the technique that would make me feel perfectly in control of everything so that I could handle anything that might be thrown at me, you know, fulfill all the work ambitions I had while making plenty of time for all the other things I wanted to do and sort of never getting there, right? Because you're sort of in this mode of constantly feeling like it's next week or next month or the next system that you implement or that you're going to wake up tomorrow with 10 times as much self-discipline than you've ever demonstrated in your life before up to uh, up to today. And so it's that sort of gradual process of realizing that I wasn't going to get there that way. And that in the meantime, what happened was I got busier. I mean, I, yeah, I did process more things. I did get more things done. But firstly, I didn't get this kind of peace of mind, this sense of tranquility with respect to time. And then secondly, they weren't necessarily the most important things. In fact, and I argue about argue this in the book that, you know, there's a reason to believe that you're going to do more and more of the least important things the more you focus on just becoming 
more efficient and sort of productive for its own sake. So that was a sort of slow realization. And then I talk also about having this epiphany sitting on a park bench uh, on a winter morning in, in Brooklyn, where I lived then, and just sort of suddenly realizing like, oh, none of this is ever going to work. Like, I'm never going to reach this <laughs> level of total control and and sort of security with respect to time that I'm that I'm fighting for here. And how sort of liberating it was to see that I had been trying to do something that is kind of I think, inherently impossible for human beings to do. And I've experienced the same thing you've experienced where I went through that. I think every person, if you're like, if you're a modern human being living in liquid modernity and hyper-individualistic, hyper-capitalist society, like that you, you go through a productivity phase. I think everyone does that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rite of passage at this point. And then, yeah, you finally realize, man, none, none of this works. And so you're always looking for the next best thing. And one of the cases you make in the book is that part of the problem that underlies all of our frustrations with popular time management paradigms is that it causes us to think of ourselves as limitless while ignoring the fact that we are finite beings. So how does thinking of ourselves as limitless, how do you think that makes us miserable? Great. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly the sort of underlying thing I'm I'm trying to get at. I think that we are made deeply uncomfortable by all the ways in which we're limited, especially the ways in which we're limited when it comes to time. We only have so much in a day. We only have so much in a life, and we don't know how much that's going to be. We can only focus on one thing at a time. And even more profoundly, I think we can't control, we can't be in control of how our time unfolds in the way that we would like to be. In other words, you know, you you launch into some creative project for example, you can't know it'll work out. You can't know you will not encounter insurmountable obstacles. You can't know this all in advance. So we're sort of vulnerable in time, in a way that I think, and to time, in a way that makes us really uncomfortable. And so we do what human beings since the beginning of history have done when they feel uncomfortable about something, which is to pursue methods of emotional avoidance, ways of not feeling the discomfort. And I think that time management and productivity techniques, you know, used wrongly in the wrong spirit, are absolutely an example of this kind of emotional avoidance. They can fuel this illusion that you're en route to this position of limitlessness, this kind of state of perfect optimization where you would never have to make tough choices about what to spend your time on. You would never have to disappoint anybody who might have any expectations of you. Um, Any obligation you might feel or goal you might set, there'll be a way to get that done too. Of course, it's never happening in the present moment because we are limited and it's not actually possible, but you're sort of kept comfortable in a way by by chasing this feeling that it's that it's going to happen and that you're and that you're almost there and so i think you know all sorts of aspects of human culture get drafted into this kind of emotional avoidance in many different domains but but productivity culture is is just one of them and and the one that i was particularly using i guess for many years for just that kind of avoidance of the experience of reality, I guess. And, you know, going, you know, you, you, you go to philosophy a lot. And as I was reading that section about this idea of limitlessness and, but we're finite beings, it reminded me of Kierkegaard. He said that was like the human condition. We are the infinite and the finite combined in one. So, you know, humans have, mm. unlike other animals, humans have the capacity to think about eternity or forever. They can see lots of choices. Animals, 
you know, they're not really thinking about too much. <laughs> but the problem is, that, yeah, he, Kierkegaard says that's the source of a lot of our anxiety or our angst. We want to do all this stuff, limitless, but like we are finite beings. We have to figure out how to manage that paradox. Right. That's exactly it. And I mean, you know, just to sort of bring Kierkegaard down to earth in a sort of maybe disrespectful to Kierkegaard way, but yeah, it's like on the level of your daily productivity, you can imagine an infinite number of things that you might want to do. You can feel an infinite number of obligations or duties. You can, you know, set all sorts of visions for where you want to be. And there's no limit to those things that happen in the, in the world of your consciousness. But there's obviously very, very severe limits when it comes to your time, your stamina, all the rest of it. And yeah, there's a sort of constant disconnect there. So I don't think that you can ever really get away from that sort of anxious situation. I think that's there's something inherently anxiety-inducing about this. I think Kierkegaard said that too. But you can choose whether you're going to try to sort of dull the pain completely and just end up wasting time as a result, or whether you're going to make some effort to sort of lean in to that discomfort in the service of carrying out some some goals that that you really care about. Yeah, I think what your book's trying to do is is trying to help readers embrace their finitude a bit more. Like, don't discount the infinite, but you have to like you have to wrangle it a little bit and just realize you have you have a limit you have to work with. And I think what you're saying is a lot of time management techniques it encourages us to think that oh we can get more and more done as much as we want we can have it all. And you're saying yeah probably well no that's not going to happen. Right. And I just want to sort of say something in defense of some of those techniques. I think a lot of this is to do with the spirit in which you try to integrate them into your life. There are certainly some time management gurus who are guilty of kind of promoting this notion that full control and mastery over time in a way that humans, I think, can't have is is on the cards. But lots of these techniques are perfectly useful if if all you're using them for is to kind of organize your day a bit more make slightly better choices between competing priorities. The problem is that I think we, lots of us anyway, we sort of glom onto them as if we're going to achieve some kind of salvation Mm. through them. And the salvation in question is actually, you know, if it were real, it would involve somehow getting outside of reality, getting outside of the situation in which we all inevitably are in. And one of the things you do too is you do some, some genealogy of our approach to time to figure out what it is, like how did we get this time management system or these systems in place, this idea of time that makes us think we can control time. And you go back in history and this idea that we can manage time or control time is a relatively new idea. It's a, it's a very modern idea. Uh, you go If you go back to medieval serfs, they never would have thought, they wouldn't have crossed their mind as time as a resource. Like, so how did, like, if you went back to your great, 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 whatever grandfather who was a <laughs> serf in England, how do they think of time and how does that differ from how we think of time and how did we get to where we are now? I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's not a straight linear story because you certainly see very modern ideas about time expressed in the ancient world. And on the other hand, I think there are probably some indigenous cultures even today who have a, a very an approach to time that feels more like something that I'm talking about as belonging to pre-industrial cultures. But it's just this whole incredibly basic idea that time is a thing. I mean, it's very hard to express this. And in the book, I end up using this phrase, you know, thinking of time as a thing, meaning 
as some kind of separate entity from yourself, not merely the medium in which your life unfolds, but somehow a resource to be maximized or something you have to be careful not to waste. I think whenever anybody today visualizes time in the context of work, say, you know, do I have enough time to do these three things by Friday? You're thinking you're imagining a calendar or a yardstick or a clock face. This whole idea that time is this objectified thing that you then have to deal with or that can sort of hound you. None of that would have arisen in the first place to a peasant in early medieval England. I think they would, we've got some reason to believe from the historical record, they would have just, they would have lived in what anthropologists call task orientation, right? This idea that the rhythms of life just emerge from the things that you're doing in your life and in your work. That It's not like you make a schedule and you can decide where to slot things in. It's like the cows need milking when they need milking. And the harvest needs harvesting when it's ready to be harvested. And a productivity guru who arrived on a medieval farm and said, look, it's really useful to batch your tasks. So why don't you do all the milking of the cows for the month today to get it out of the way? Obviously, that's absolutely absurd. You're too yoked into nature and the rhythms of of reality to make that kind of decision, to, to have that kind of dictatorial control over time. And I think most of us have some experience of this today. It's just not the norm anymore. Anyone who has been the parent of a very small child, a newborn, I think has experienced being in that world where things just happen. The baby needs to be fed when it needs to be fed and diapers need to be changed when they need to be changed. It's not something you can ever hope, at least at the beginning, to schedule. And I think that arises in lots of other contexts as well. So all I really wanted to do here was to just say, hey, let's at least remember that our main way of relating to time today is not the only option. It is historically contingent. It is something we can sort of hope to get outside of at least for some hours of the day or some weeks of the year, which is not the same as saying, I think we should live like medieval peasants because that is a terrible, terrible (laughs) life in pretty much every other respect. And yeah, and this transition to thinking of time as a resource, like I said, it sort of went through different cycles, like monks were involved, then, you know, capitalism in 19th century where, you know, we shifted from task-oriented work to you're going to work by the hour. Mm -hmm. And then now we're kind of stuck with that. But like, what is it about thinking of time as a resource, right? Like, uh, as opposed to thinking of time as just being I don't know, not even like, it's not something to be used. It just, it's just, just is. How does seeing time as a, as a resource, how does that make us miserable? You think? Well, I mean, firstly, caveat, I think it's probably essential to almost all the achievements of the modern world. So I don't think it's something we can just get rid of, but I think it does have this strong uh, set of problems as well. And, you know, there are a number of different ones, but the, but the sort of fundamental one, I think, is just that this instrumental approach to time, this idea that you are in a use relationship with time and you're always on some level asking, am I making the best use of my time? Or, you know, sometimes it's more in, in certain times in history as well, you know, employers asking how to get the best use of time out of their employees, whatever. It broadly has this effect of postponing the, the, the value of life, right? It, 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 makes, it makes everything you're doing now valuable solely in terms of what it's leading up to. And it makes that 
that this is a, a thing that makes it very, very difficult to sort of extract a sense of meaning from life in the present because you've always got, you know, an eye on the future to, to the moment when this is all going to deliver or fail to deliver in some future accomplishment, which of course never happens because the future remains in the future. Lots of other, you know, different ways in which it, in which this causes problems. But I think it leads overall to this sense that you're in a kind of a struggle with time and you've got to try to subdue it somehow, got to try to get on top of it or out front of it, whatever spatial metaphor you want to use. And the problem is that's always going to be a recipe for a kind of, a kind of never ending anxiety and stress because actually you're, you're not really relating to time. You're relating to a certain set of ideas about time. And the problem with declaring war on time is that uh, eventually, time is always going to win that struggle, and it just sort of keeps going on regardless, no matter what you what you do with it. If that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And I, I really related this idea of you know treating time as a resource causes you to make treat time as a as an instrument, and because a lot of time management is all about planning for the future. And I think if you've grown up in in any Western country, you're kind of set on to this. I mean, it's like in the culture, it just seeps into you. Like you go to, like the idea is you, you got to get good grades in high school so you can get to a good college. And then you got to get in a good college so you can get the good job. And then you got to get a good job so you can, you know, be an attractive mate and get a good house. So it's, you're never, you're always doing something for something else and you're never, and it just feels like, it's like a never ending, it's like the rat race. It's a never ending conveyor belt. And it just makes you feel terrible. And then you always reach that point. It's like, once you achieve all those things, it's like, all right, what now? What do I do now? Like what, what happens now? Yeah, completely. And of course, we do need to do those things. I would be a complete hypocrite if I claimed that I sort of, you know, don't live many swathes of my life with a strong focus on the future and and instrumentalizing the present moment. But there's two things. Firstly, it doesn't need to be the sole focus that you take to any moment of experience, I don't think. And secondly, it's very useful, I I argue in the book, to, to try to make sure that there is something in your life some activity, some some pastime that is just for itself alone, that that is that that resists that um instrumentalization. You know, these are things we tend to think of as as hobbies, which is a sort of in many in many circles, I think, is a sort of a slightly embarrassing, cringe making kind of idea to deliberately cultivate a hobby which has no purpose other than itself. But I think it's cringe making because it's so antithetical to the to the prevailing message of the culture, right? Which is that nothing is valuable unless it is for some future, some future purpose, preferably financial profit. So yeah, I think it's just something to pay attention to and make sure you don't eliminate entirely from, from, from a life. And what's sad and interesting is that we've even instrumentalized hobbies. And it used to be you could have a hobby and people are like, oh yeah, you build model trains. That's fine. But now it's like, well, if you're going to build model trains, you've got to like have a social media account where you're <laughs> an, a, a model trained influencer. You have to, it has to be a side right. hustle. You can't, just, you can't just have model trains just because you enjoy it. Right. Yeah. Side hustles. Side hustles are cool. Hobbies are uncool. And, yeah. and I think there's a reason for that. And so, you know, one, one way around that, which I certainly do in my life is to, is to do some, find something that you enjoy that you're not very good at. I, I really enjoy hammering out various sort of piano rock songs on the keyboard that I have here, but I tell you, I'm not good at it. I would not, uh, 
I would not perform for love or money, and I certainly wouldn't get any money <laughs> for performing. That's a useful thing in a way because there's no pressure there. There's no attempt to think that I might one day instrumentalize it. And obviously, what I do professionally, writing, is absolutely different from that. It's really hard to not think about writing with one eye to, well, is this going to be a huge success? Is this book going to sell a lot of copies? I might, like, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So good to have something that you that you suck at, but that you yeah. find enjoyment in. There's a word for those type of activities. It's a Greek word you threw it in the book. I can't remember it. It starts with an A. There's like, there's telos activities. Uh, yeah. This atelic activity. A-t-lic. It's yeah. Greek in a sense. Yeah. It's really, it's essentially coined by a contemporary philosopher, Kieran Satya. But what he means, as I understand it, is an activity that is not defined by its telos, atelic. It, it's just something you do for itself alone. Hiking is the ex- other example I talk about at length in the book. If you want to get more efficient at hiking, where, you know, you drive the car somewhere and then you walk in a loop or you walk to a point and turn around again. The most efficient way to do a hike is just not to go. Then you're you're back at the starting point immediately. (laughs) So doing that for some future purpose, you know, that's not a perfect point because maybe you get more physically fit through hiking or you update your social media account with great pictures from your hikes. But basically, hiking is a thing, is an atelic activity par excellence really because you know, you just do it. You're not leading up to something. There's not going to come a time when you say, I have completed all the hiking I planned to do in my life. It, it just is, it, it resists all of those, all of those kind of pressures. I think. Yeah. So that's a way to, to rebel against our instrumental culture. Just do something because you enjoy and that will bring you happiness. And it's like the happiness is the side effect. Cause that's another thing people can get into like, well, I read this study. If you have a hobby, it will make me happier. And by being happier, I'll be more productive and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you can't go down that. Just like, no, just play piano <laughs> because you like to hammer out piano rock tunes. That's it. That's it. Right. Right. And yeah, that's just instrumentalization again, right? Yeah. Chasing, chasing happiness. I mean, you know, we're made to do this. I don't think that uh, people should feel bad about this sort of natural tendency towards achieving future goals. I just think consciousness of what's going on can be really helpful because then it makes you like, nobody wants to spend their whole life uh, only waiting for the moment on their deathbed where they get to say like, Oh, that was enjoyable in hindsight, right? Nobody Mm -hmm. wants that. So once you see that that's part of what you're, you're doing, I think it becomes pretty natural to ease up on that, on that focus a bit. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. Whether it's stress, a demanding morning schedule, or trouble sleeping, we all know that sometimes life keeps you up. And trying to conquer the day after a night of tossing and turning is not so easy. Now you can get the sleep you deserve with ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies. ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies are designed to help you fall asleep naturally with no next day grogginess. Made at an optimal level of melatonin combined with a proprietary blend of other botanicals like chamomile and lavender, ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies help to regulate your sleep cycle instead of just knocking you out. They're non-habit forming and work with your body to help you get the sleep you need. And to top it off, they come in a great tasting wild berry vanilla flavor. So I've been using ZQuil Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies for the past month now. Really have enjoyed it. I've used melatonin in the past to help me fall asleep when I've had trouble falling asleep. I like the Pure Z's Melatonin Gummies because, well, it comes in a gummy format. And who does not like gummies? The botanical blend helps you feel nice and relaxed, drift off to sleep. And the next day, 
Don't feel groggy. Check out ZQL PureZ's melatonin gummies and the full line of PureZ's sleep aids to start sleeping soundly today. And now back to the show. Yeah, and you quote Richard Rohr a lot. We've had him in the podcast. And he has that idea is that, you know, there's a first half of your life where you're kind of doing the instrumental stuff. Like you're trying to build a career, you're trying to do those things. But he said at a certain point, and this can happen at any time in your in the lifespan, you've got to like move beyond that and kind of just enjoy life for what it is. And he says it's a it's a hard process. It's not doesn't something you can't force, it just kind of happens. Yeah, I mean, you get this this sort of idea. I love uh, Richard Rohr's work. I think he is influenced by Jung, right? And it is, yeah. and that's a Jungian notion as well that there's a sort of first half and a second half of adult life, and that certain ways of being, perhaps even certain forms of productivity geekhood, are maybe appropriate to young adulthood up to a point, but then they're going to sort of stop being the answer if they ever are the answer. And at that point, you sort of do need to come up with a different way of thinking, one that isn't entirely targeted on on where you're going. I mean, something people have said about this book in a sort of semi-critical way, which I'm, I'm receptive to, is that it's a sort of a bit of a midlife book, you know, whether I, I'm not sure I could have written it if I was in my 20s. I've tried very hard not to make it only appropriate to people in midlife, and I, and I don't think it is, but I think, you know, there are certain things you you come to see just by being around long enough yeah. that certain methods and things you thought might work, like eventually that you, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to get to this, this summit that is implied in, in all these um, techniques that I'm, that I'm pursuing. And if I'm not going to get to it, uh, maybe it's time to think about a different approach. So let's go back to this idea of rediscovered, like, the more efficient you got at doing stuff, you felt like you're just, you started doing more stuff. And what's interesting, you know, half a century ago, there was economists, I think Maynard Keyes made this prediction. It's like, oh, we'd only be working a few hours a week because we'd be so productive and efficient. But people are still working 40 hours a week or more. So what's going on there? Like, why is it that we're getting more done than ever? We're more productive than ever, but we just feel like we have to work more to, to do more. Yeah, it's completely extraordinary, especially the way now that, you know, being incredibly successful in some professional sector is likely to leave you more busy than if you weren't extremely successful. And you look at sort of almost the whole of history, the whole point of being wealthy was so you could, you know, go hunting and have banquets or something, you know, so you didn't have to, didn't have to work uh, all the time. And now that's sort of turned on its, on its head. There are a huge number of different factors here, macroeconomic, social, cultural issues. But I think a very simple part of what we're talking about here is just that if you focus on making any system, such as you know your own personal productivity, any system more efficient in the absence of some other guiding value, just like efficiency for its own sake, then all else being equal, you're going to end up being busier and busier on less meaningful stuff because you just sort of create capacity that is then naturally filled by the pressures of the world, the pressures of capitalism, pressures of other people. You know, if you get really, really good at processing your email, as I know from bitter experience, you just get lots more email because you reply to things and that generate replies to those replies and et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's this phrase, this, this saying, you know, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person. The idea, if you're really good at processing your work, you're going to get more work or take on more work. If you're a sort of independent person who gets to independently employed person who gets to choose, you're, you're still going to choose to do more and more and more. 
And, you know, it's exactly like when they widen freeways to try to ease congestion by they add another lane to freeway and then it makes the that route more appealing to drivers so more drivers are incentivized to use it and the congestion returns to what it was <laughs> before you get this this sort of seems to work in all sorts of domains of life this idea that just sort of becoming more productive will will invite further inputs into the system and the other thing i found was that you know they're they're less meaningful inputs because they don't have to clear this hurdle. Someone someone says to you, can you do this? And you don't think to yourself, well, what am I going to neglect in favor of this? You think, oh, just through becoming more efficient, I'll be able to do it all. Um, and so you gradually end up taking on more and more and more things that you probably shouldn't take on until the system is full of junk. And how do you avoid that? Is it just a matter of having, like in this, in this instance, having a telos, like having like, this is, here's what I'm about. And if this task doesn't fulfill that, what I'm about, then that it's not coming on. I think that's a big part of it. Obviously, to the extent that this is a social and cultural-wide problem, it probably has to be addressed at a policy level too. But yeah, I think on a on a personal level, you can just see that, you know, you can bring yourself to see that that you are not that like to understand that you're just not going to get everything done. Like you are in a situation where systematically it's going to feel like there's more that really matters than you have the capacity to do that this is built into the system. It's not because you're insufficiently self-disciplined or you haven't found the right techniques yet or something like that. And in that situation, once you sort of internalize that understanding, it's actually quite liberating because you can just sort of give up in a way. It's a certain kind of surrender or defeat, you know, where you see that something you were trying to do was just impossible. But it's a defeat that is the prelude to then being able to act with a much clearer head and more undiluted energy and attention on a handful of things that matter because you're no longer attempting to do an impossible amount of things. You've sort of seen why it is that 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 is an impossible quest. It frees you up to to focus on more things and that, that, that do matter. And I think, you know, very simple strategies here include this, you know, I spent a lot of my time as a productivity geek you know, trying to clear the decks, trying to get to this situation where I would have dealt with all the little stuff and I would have then these notional expanses of focus and time. And it took me a long time to see that actually, like, you can't clear the decks because clearing the decks generates more work and more things come into the onto the decks. And we live in a world of infinite stuff to come onto your decks anyway. So at the most, you can spend a couple of hours at the end of the day clearing the decks, sure, but you just at some point have to spend the first few hours on the thing you care about the most, even though the decks aren't clear. Uh, and that is anxiety-inducing. It's it's uncomfortable, but I think it's the only way. Yeah, yeah I think and in one of your emails, you had this idea, instead of thinking of your to-do list as a bucket that you know you can empty, you just got to think of it as a river. It's just constantly, stuff's constantly going to be flowing by you and you just have to decide, is this what I'm going to spend my time on today or not? And maybe, yes, but probably maybe you shouldn't be spending time on that. And right. And the thing is, that was always true anyway, right? It's not like you're suddenly deciding to let a bunch of people down. The point is, this is baked into the situation. Like there's all sorts of things that would have value if you did them that you're never going to do. So this is about being conscious of that situation so that you get to call the shots about which of the things you do do. Otherwise, in the words of workplace consultant Jim Benson, who I quote in the book, you know, you just become a limitless reservoir for other people's 
demands and expectations because if you're not making the decision about what to neglect in a situation where something must be neglected by definition, then somebody else is going to make that decision and they're going to make it in their interests. And related to this idea of increased efficiency just encourages more stuff to be done because uh, that's, that's what the system is designed for do. It's just getting stuff done. So it's going to f- you know, continually want more stuff to do is this idea of increased convenience makes us feel miserable, which is counterintuitive because you think, well, if things are more convenient, if I can get stuff sent to my door directly from Amazon in a day, that should make my life easier. But you make this case, yeah, maybe, but also maybe not. Right. I mean, convenience is such a great example of the perils of efficiency pursued for its own sake because, yeah, I mean, I think in some sense, all the efficiencies of modern technology absolutely have made life easier. The question is whether easier is always what we want uh, when trying to build the most valuable life. So, you know, a very simple example of that is, yeah, if, if, if you can, there's a natural tendency, if you can watch movies streaming at home and get food delivered to your door without ever speaking to a human being and do all the rest of this stuff, like that's easier than than going out, meeting people or phoning a restaurant, talking to a human being. It's easier, but it sort of all adds up to something being taken out of of life, which are these kind of rough edges and textures where you do have to speak to people. And as a result, you sort of, it's actually quite it's important for your well-being to have a few conversations with human beings in the course of your day. I also give the example of, you know, I'm in the UK right now, but for a long time I've lived in the US with lots of family in the UK, always leaving it too late to send them a birthday card on time. So I would end up using these online services where you put the card together with a photo and a message, and then it prints it and mails it locally at the other end. And like everyone involved in that process knows that that's not quite the same, like that I've used convenience there and something has gone from the, from the uh, transaction that if I had gone to the effort of planning with enough foresight, enough forethought to have enough time to buy a card, write in it, mail it, that would mean more to the recipient because actually something is lost in making that process really smooth and, and and easy. So, you know, again and again, there are many examples of this. You know, I think, yeah, it makes life smoother. But do you want a smooth life? I mean, to some extent you do, but maybe not a perfectly smooth one. Well, yeah, the, the Silicon Valley people who come with these apps that make life convenient, they call that, those pain points friction. And their whole goal is right. to eliminate friction. And what you're saying is, no, actually friction can be good because it allows you to talk to the the, the clerk and you might have a conversation that you need that. And it's, I mean, yeah, I don't think you're, a smooth life would be boring. So why, why eliminate it? Like why eliminate friction? Right. And you're just sort of, also, you're just sort of handing the decision about what kind of experiences you want in your life to a other people in Silicon Valley designing this technology and b your sort of lowest impulses in a way, right? The impulse to not put in the effort to do something. And as philosophers since, you know, ancient times have understood that, that following your impulse all the time is it is its own kind of enslavement in a way. It's its own kind of losing loss of autonomy. So yeah, just like if you can consciously integrate a few of these technologies into your life, I don't certainly don't think people should like actively pursue only inconvenience at all points. But like it's just like handing the decision-making to forces that do not have your best interests at heart. 
So uh, we've been talking kind of about small ways that you can embrace finitude so you're, you don't feel so angst-ridden. But then you also talk about some like, there's like a metacognition things you can do to help you think about time differently and your relation to time differently. That if you do it and you meditate on, if you do these sort of like, uh, what do we call them? Mind, I don't know, mind games, we'll call them mind games. It can help you think about your time differently. It can actually be really freeing. You can just surely shift the paradigm. And one, there's two things I want to talk about. First is uh, Heidegger's concept of time. And there's a reason why I saved Heidegger for last because this guy, it's hard to understand <laughs> this guy. But I know you're not gonna be able to like exactly explain what Heidegger meant, and maybe we don't even know what Heidegger meant. Uh, but like, what what's what's Heidegger's concept of time, and like, how can that, or like your interpretation of of what he thinks of time, and how can that change, or how does that change your relation to time? Yeah, Heidegger is not easy, and uh, I'm just going to issue, as I always do, the caveat that I don't claim that my interpretation is canonical, or that somebody else uh, wouldn't want to offer a very different one. But my understanding of what Heidegger is saying it is really something that points again to this idea that we were discussing in the context of medieval peasants, this idea that time need not be seen and is perhaps not best seen as this thing that is separate from us. That in a sense, our time and, and the fact that our time is finite, it's not just like one of the traits that defines a human being. It is the fundamental one before we can ask any question about what we should do with our lives or how we should do it, we already find ourselves in this finite stretch of time, being born forward on the river of time. Perhaps we could say, as I think he sort of means too, that we just sort of are this stretch of time. It's so fundamental that there isn't really a separation. We just are a short stretch of time being born forward towards death. We don't know when it's coming. Every choice we make is a choice to not do other things, a million other things with that moment, that hour, that week. And that there is a kind of choice that you have to make between doing all sorts of things to try to deny this feeling and not confront it and feel like you're not in this situation of being born forward towards death in a stretch of finite time, or facing up to it, facing up to the anxiety that that inevitably brings, but but sort of taking seriously the stakes of your time and each moment of your time and what you do with your time. And so I think that that's just a very useful shift to get into a little bit. I certainly don't claim that I've sort of done it perfectly, but I do think that there is something central to this idea of of just seeing our situation for what it is and seeing how much effort we put into denying that our situation is, is what it is. And it's not about, I don't think it's about spending your life in this sort of horrified awareness of death. I don't think it's really about death in that sense. I think it's just about one major consequence of the fact that we die, which is that our time is finite. And just sort of letting the implications of that course through your veins a bit to the point where you stop acting and making decisions as if you had all the time in the world. Um, not necessarily doing, you know, trying really hard to do extraordinary things with every minute of the day, but just living in a sort of more authentic relationship to where you actually are. This section reminded me for some reason, I haven't thought about this movie in years, but have you seen Tombstone 
with I that. haven't. I'm afraid. Okay, it's a great movie. It's the, it's the best movie about Wyatt Earp. You don't why the Wyatt Earp movie with Kevin Costner is really boring. I think so. This one, <laughs> okay. Tombstone, it's a lot of fun. It's got Val Kilmer, Kurt Russell, and there's this scene. Uh, you know, Val Kilmer plays Doc Holliday. He's about to die, and he asks Wyatt Earp, "Like, what did you ever want?" And then Wyatt Earp says, "Just to live a normal life." And Doc Holliday said, "There's no normal life, Wyatt. It's just life. Get on with it." Uh, yeah, so I think we had some Heidegger in uh, Tombstone. Tombstone there. <laughs> yeah, no, I think there's, uh, there's, there's, yeah, I can see the connection. Uh, yeah. I must watch that movie. Yeah, or you can, you can at least watch the scene. You can look it up on YouTube. So the, the final thing that you do is you talk about, it's like a mind, a meditation you have to do. It's called cosmic insignificance therapy. How can this help us feel better about our time management or have a more humane approach towards time management? I mean, this is my slightly facetious label for the process of, of really putting some effort into imagining, understanding how, how tiny and insignificant, yes, you are considered, not you personally, you know, how, in, how insignificant we are considered in the, the, the sort of expanse of, the, of the, the history and the future of the, of the cosmos. I think there's something just at the f- first glance incredibly freeing about understanding that the way you get sort of paralyzed by the, the seeming significance of choices you make, it can be very relaxing right right away. And I think motivating to to understand that, you know, a thousand years from now, hundred years from now, uh, almost nothing you decide is going to matter in any way. That can actually be an invitation to just sort of take some risks and live boldly and do some things that you wanted to do without being so anxious about their impact. I also think that it's a really useful way to consider and reconsider the definition of a meaningful life that you're sort of implicitly carrying with you when you assess your own life and try to build a meaningful life. The obvious criticism of this approach, I get it, right, is that it's just like, well, if everything's so point, if if we're all so insignificant, why do anything? It's all pointless. But I just don't think that that follows. I, I write in the book, about the work of a philosopher, Ido Landau, who points out that the person who says, well, nothing I do is going to have counted for anything in a thousand years' time, or probably won't have, so why do anything? They are invoking, whether they recognize it or not, a, a definition of a meaningful life that is set, where the bar is set so high that they would have to sort of be superhuman to meet it. They would have to manage to, if not be superhuman, then at least reach the level of the kind of person who occurs like once in several hundred years, a Shakespeare or a Tolstoy or a Michelangelo, you know, and that we should question whether we really want to be going around with this kind of definition of what makes it worth doing things and what is meaningful. We should consider that there are all sorts of kind of ordinary seeming things that could absolutely count as the content of a meaningful life that, you know, do you really want to say that um, working for an organization that makes your small neighborhood a little more beautiful or a little friendlier, that that was pointless because it didn't affect the whole planet forever? Or that caring for an elderly relative who needs that at that point in their lives is is kind of pointless because 
you know, the, it doesn't, you didn't put a dent in the universe. I think that most of us intuitively know that we don't want that kind of definition of what counts as a meaningful life. And we do want to remember that ordinary things can be, can be meaningful or, you know, on the level, I think about this book, like if it affects a few people positively in, in my generation, that's great. It, it should not be the measure of a book that you write that, um, in, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years time, people are celebrating it like that. That's just why adopt a level of a, a, a definition of meaning that uh, sort of systematically puts almost everything that we do as humans on the wrong side of it. Well, Kierkegaard talks about that. He has that quote, it's like the ambitious man whose slogan is either Caesar or nothing. <laughs> right. And then like, he doesn't become Caesar and he just becomes, he just, he's in despair. He's like, well, nothing matters. And like, you're here. It's like, that's dumb. Like, don't do that. That's, that's stupid. Right. And yeah, and this, this, and this chapter reminded me of my great grandfather in his memoir at the end of it. He wrote this like in the fifties or sixties. He put the, at the end of his memoir, a poem called there is no indispensable man. I'll link to it, but it's, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, you know, you come into this world, you might make a big splash, but when you leave it, you're not going to leave much behind. But that's that's okay. Like it's for some reason, I find it ennobling. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to take risks. I'm going to do just find meaning in my mundane everyday life. That's 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 okay. It's probably the best we can do. Right, and I really don't think it's a council of despair. Right, I don't think it means that you have to have a less meaningful life. I don't think it means you can't do extraordinary things that or you know, things that will lead to you achieving fame and fortune. I think that's all great. I just think that when you're considering, you know, the ways you're spending your life, that it shouldn't be the, the criterion should not be something sort of that is kind of superhuman in, in that regard. If, if you do something that counts and it gets you a lot of fame and fortune, great. I'm not against that at all, but don't use that as, let alone these kind of even bigger kind of cosmic level kinds of definitions of meaning. Don't use all that to, to define what counts as meaningful. Follow something more human. And then, you know, if it's successful, maybe maybe fame and fortune will follow. And the idea is you can apply this to your to-do list. Like, don't think you have to like have on your bucket list, write a New York Times bestselling novel. If that happens, great. But, you know, write the book that you've been wanting to write for a long time, even if it's crappy and even if no one ever reads it, just write the book. Right. Yeah. I mean, if it matters, it matters. It shouldn't need to matter on a level that is sort of something that's entirely beyond human control or your control. Right. Exactly. Well, Oliver, this has been a great conversation. I've had a lot of fun. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? You can pick up the book anywhere you would expect to be able to pick up books. And then my website is oliverberkman.com where you can also subscribe to my email newsletter, which I call The Imperfectionist. Fantastic. Well, Oliver Berkman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. So when I was talking to Oliver about cosmic insignificance therapy, I mentioned a poem called There Is No Indispensable Man that my great-grandfather, William M. Hurst, included at the very end of his memoirs that he published shortly before he died. I also learned that General Dwight D. Eisenhower carried a copy of this poem in his pocket at all times. I'm guessing it was his way of doing some cosmic insignificance therapy. So for your enjoyment and meditation, here's the poem, There Is No Indispensable Man. Sometime when you're feeling important, Sometime when your ego's in bloom. Sometime when you take it for granted, you're the best qualified in the room. Sometime when you feel that you're going would leave an unfillable hole. Just follow these simple instructions and see how they humble your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to the wrist. Pull it out and the hole that's remaining 
is a measure of how much will be missed. You can splash all you wish when you enter. You may stir up the water galore, but stop and you'll find that in no time, it looks quite the same as before. The moral of this quaint example is to do just the best you can. Be proud of yourself, but remember, there's no indispensable man. My guest today is Oliver Berkman. He's the author of the book, 4,000 Weeks. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, oliverberkman.com. Also check out our show notes at awim.is slash 4,000 Weeks, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app in Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcast or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to not only listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.